the Cohen Multimedia Studio on the grounds of Chautauqua Institution, welcome to CHQ&A, Chautauqua's flagship podcast. I'm Jordan Steves. At CHQ&A, we continue conversations that begin on stages and porches across the Chautauqua grounds. Listen on for even deeper insight into the work and thought processes of some of the celebrated individuals who passed through our gates this summer. On today's episode, guest interviewer John Marino speaks with Nina Khrushcheva, a professor in the Graduate Program of International Affairs at the New School, where her research interests include global media and culture, world politics, Russian politics and culture, and propaganda in Hollywood. Khrushcheva presented an amphitheater lecture during this week on Russia and the West on Wednesday, July 18th. Khrushcheva is the author of Imagining Nabokov, Russia Between Art and Politics, and The Lost Khrushchev, A Journey into the Gulag of the Russian Mind, which is about her grandfather, Leonid Khrushchev, the oldest son of former Soviet premier Nikita Khrushchev. Her latest book, In Putin's Footsteps, Searching for the Soul of an Empire Across Russia's 11 Time Zones, is forthcoming in 2019. And now, John Marino's conversation with Nina Khrushcheva. Joining us in the Cohen Multimedia Studio today is Dr. Nina Khrushcheva. She's the Professor of International Affairs at the New School in New York. She has a PhD in Comparative Literature from Princeton, a senior fellow of the World Policy Institute, a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, and the recipient of the Great Immigrants, the Pride of America Award from the Carnegie Corporation of New York. Doctor, welcome. Thank you very much. You know, this could not be more timely. Uh, after what transpired yesterday with the alleged summit, I guess it was a meeting as much as anything. I don't know. I think in summits there's a little more of an agenda uh, between uh, our president, President Trump, and President Putin of the Soviet Union. Of Russia. You're correct. Of Russia. Uh, that's right. There is that's no more Soviet Union. That's a very interesting well, slip of the tongue here. You know, uh, but it's probably when I grew up, right? And so once it's in your mind, it's pretty tough to... Uh, well, but it's also how Putin is perceived here in the United States, that he's uh, just an extension of the Soviet Union. By, well, and, and yeah, for all intents and purposes, I think he is. He is. Uh, and what was your take on that? Well, at least he's trying to rebuild the Soviet Union. I actually disagree with that. I think Do it's you? a very, yes, it's kind of, it has become a throwaway line for the United States because essentially Russia, extension of the Soviet Union, never stopped being an enemy and it's easier to frame it in Soviet terms than discover new terms for um, for somebody who America sees as an adversary. Uh, I don't think Putin wants to rebuild the Soviet Union in any way possible. I think he wants to have his own great Russia. And okay. if some of the parts uh, overlap with what the Soviet Union was, that's fine. But in many ways, he's Putin the first. So he is building that umpire, empire wants to have a great Russia. I mean, empire probably is too strong of a word, or, but could be useful. Uh, uh, that goes back to the times of Peter the Great, Catherine the Great. So it's much bigger than uh, the Soviet Union um, idea for Russia was, although perhaps smaller, much smaller than the Soviet Union idea that the world is going to be all communist. And that's not what Putin's, Putin's agenda is in okay. no way. So I think that uh, when we speak about Russia, uh, one has to think about those complexities that has happened in the last century, in the last 25 years. And I always feel 
that we're shorthanded here in America because it's much easier to say, well, Putin is a dictator, as you know, John McCain likes to say, right. or uh, as Hillary Clinton once compared Putin to Hitler. And I think that kind of gives America moral standing, but really doesn't explain or help the complexities that the relationship between Russia and the United States have faced, are facing, will be facing in the future. Well, Putin has spent nearly two decades in power now. Um, you know, he's made some interesting moves uh, uh, in um, uh, in attempts, I think, to broaden, uh, as it were, the perception of Russia as, as a, a larger power. power. Great power. He yes. wants to be the great, that kind of great power of Peter the Great, Catherine the Great, right. Joseph Stalin, uh, which not necessarily Soviet, but sort of the, what Ru- Russian Empire once was. Is do you feel that he's is he of that ilk? Is he of the Stalin ilk in his mindset? Well, I mean, if I say yes, then it could be easily dismissed as he's the same as Stalin, and it's not a direct comparison in any way. But he's of the ilk of. Um, a strong hand ruler. He believes that power starts and ends with him. And I think that makes it in that ilk. But that ilk is not just Stalin-esque. I mean, it's uh, all strong leaders of the universe. Well, I mean, they yeah. are of this type. And it's, you know, Richard Nixon in America wanted to be that kind of guy. Sure. Ronald Reagan probably, I mean, he was... Uh, less open open about it, but he also saw himself as a single-handedly kind of solving the problems of America and uh, having a relationship with the Soviet Union uh, at the time. So I think that ilk, I mean, it has a broad spectrum. You can be on the um, kind of the on Genghis Khan part of that, right, <laughs> of right, that right, right. spectrum, uh-huh. or you can be Viktor Orban on Hungary, which is, you know, it is Hungary is a European Union nation. Uh, and uh, technically democracy, but so the the spectrum is broad, and Putin is certainly within it, in it, and probably in today's world is a leader of it, and I think that what makes it uh, him so attractive to Donald Trump, who himself sees. Uh, his position in the world as somebody who can single-handedly win it all, fix it all, right. have it all, and, and whatnot. Would you define it as authoritarianism? I am, I am really because I know what authoritarianism is. I'm from well, yes. from from that yes. from the Soviet Union. I would certainly call this type of leadership autocracy. Okay. Uh, I have very difficult time, and kind of really problems with uh, calling it dictatorship because Stalinism was a dictatorship. And, you know, nothing that is happening today uh, uh, in Russia is close to it. I mean, and uh, Turkey, which is, I know it's a very big surprise to many Americans, not that it is a surprise, but, you know, Russia is a formidable enemy, so they want to see it as an enemy. And, you know, when I mentioned Turkey, ah, who cares? It's a NATO country, and so we don't really right. we don't really care. But Erdo, um, Erdogan, the Turkish president, is more authoritarian than Putin. But well, once again... given the new powers Exactly, has, given, right. and, you know, in the last five uh, five years, he really accumulated more and more. So I think comparatively, uh, it's not really authoritarian leadership, but it's certainly an autocratic leadership. And once again, and I do think that Putin has at least six more years in power. He just won 
just received right. <laughs> his fourth term, for, for lack of a better word, uh, and as president, fourth term as president. And, uh, um, you know, I, I believe it's going to get more restrictive rather than less. And we may get to the true authoritarianism. But so far, it's, uh, um, I like to call this kind of leadership that now has really proliferated in the world, including uh, European countries, even West European countries, uh, is sort of authoritarian de democracy, or and these people are democratic autocrats because they are democratically elected, or mm -hmm. they are elected, but then they really concentrate a lot of power in their own hands. And I think Donald Trump is more than anything he once said. I'm sure you remember when he met with uh, Kim Jong-un of North Korea, and his yes. response was later is that when when he speaks, everybody sits down and listen, and I want the same thing. So, I mean, that sure. makes him a budding autocrat, for well, sure. Well, that was part of Trump's commentary it, yesterday, it, too, it, about uh, in Russia, the 30,000 emails would have been, never it, would have disappeared. Exa we, exactly. We so, would have found them. Exactly. So, he's an aspiring, he's a budding and aspiring autocrat, for sure. Even, probably for him, it's more of a you know, it would make great reality TV show. What's your sense of the people of, of the nations, though, of Russia and the United States and the tolerance level they would have for the leadership taking steps beyond where they are today? I mean, do you think in Russia, for example, I think in the United States, we, you know, it's much more open, obviously. I think our perception, at least, is it's much more open. You can verify that for me. Um and I think we would have many more folks on the streets uh, in, in displays of public dissent uh, than you might have other places on the planet. But do you think the people of Russia would tolerate, you know, perhaps the next step? And the next step might be the one that pushes it right to the edge of authoritarianism. And are they ready to deal with that? Or is it something they would be accepting of, I guess, and as long as things seem to be functioning well within the country, would they just kind of turn the other cheek, as it were, and uh, unfortunately, as the Republicans are doing here in the United States today with the president, for the most part. I think it's an excellent question. It kind of goes to the core of this debate, what is Russia, what is America, and how different or similar they are. But once again, I mean, Russia has a different history. I mean, that's, that, that's the basis of it, is that uh, Russian history, uh, in, in the history of Russia, democracy has never been a great thing, because when the Soviet Union fell apart in 1991. Uh, democracy f came in with uh, American assistance, and it turned out to be a horrible, chaotic um, kind of um, winner-takes-all uh, Wild West capitalism, which, of course, was branded as democratic development. Right. So for the Russian experience, that was... I mean, they were killed less, I guess, uh, by the state. Better, it was not as bad as it was during Joseph Stalin. But there was such a disarray in the '90s, generally, that people got killed in the streets just because you know they would um, robbed and killed and and rocketeered and whatnot. So for them, the democratic, the way it was sold to them, that democratic experience was not really what democracy should be all about, or at least they thought was democracy all about. So it is a different experience, first of all. And second of all, um, you know, once again, Russia is not unique as saying, well, we want order and we want stability, and therefore we are not going to rock the Kremlin boat, although they, they have been rocking the Kremlin boat, not to the extent that 
even I thought that they should have in 2012 when Putin went for his third term right. as president, mm-hmm. but they still did. But once again, it's not, I mean, in America, it's, oh, Russians are this and the rest of the world is just like the United States. No, I mean, let's remember Singapore, Lee Kuan Yew. It was the same kind of formula mm-hmm. uh, when um, sort of the state behavior was excused undemocratic behavior was excused uh, just because it was good for the nation, because Lee Kuan Yew was creating the modern Singapore, as Putin is creating that, uh, or recreating the great new power. So once again, uh, not that in America people are wrong in looking at Russia a certain way, but what I find most troubling is that it's never contextualized, because Mm -hmm. Russian sees threats through such lens of the enemy, even when it is not an enemy, that all the things that America is saying Russia is wrong. If you look just, you know, let's look at Saudi Arabia, the great American ally. I mean, you know, why are they never asked? I mean, until recently, never asked any questions. So I think that, and that actually, that kind of non-contextualization provides Putin with great ammunition because he says, well, America is hypocritical, and it is, and he's right. And so for him, that's American hypocrisy in looking at Russia and not looking at, at, at others and forgiving its own actions, say, in Iraq, say, in Afghanistan, uh, say, in pushing the um, Arab Spring on the 2010s, but not really taking care of those countries right, afterwards. Right. I mean, what are they thinking? They're going to just, right. well, Egypt will fall and what will happen next? So for Putin, that's an ammunition. And not it's not a wrong one. And it is kind of, and it's not a wrong one. It's not the wrong ammunition for Putin to have. And it is problematic. I mean, the more America shrieks about how horrible Russia is, the more Putin has validity to say to his people and saying, well, that's what you want? You want that kind of shrinkage that is completely um, uh, completely unfair? And so people do then become nationalistic and say, fine, uh, but look at our leader. He just, you know, swept swept Trump under the rug right. the way Nikita Khrushchev swept John swept, Kennedy uh, or Jack Kennedy but even more so Vice President Richard Nixon that, was swept true. under the yes. rug during so but and so once again because Russians remember all these little victories because they've been really humiliated by the United States but Americans forget that Putin is not that original even in that I mean there've been <laughs> instances of American presidents being handed uh, handed their backsides back to them. Of course, what never happened is that the American president willingly accept that kind of development. And I think that is a remarkable kind of stunning moment for <laughs> Russia, America, and everybody else. Well, everyone in lesser stature that has to react to it, certainly. Absolutely. Uh, um Nationalization. You did a essay, Russia's Identity in Perpetual Crisis. I don't want so much to talk about the essay as I do the concept of the collection of essays, the globalization of nationalism, and get your sense of that. I, I, here's my take on it, um, certainly not having the depth of world experience that you have. Um, if you're in France, you're a Frenchman. If you're in Russia, you're a Russian. If you're in England, you're English. If you're in the United States, you could come from 4,000 different places all over the planet. So how is it that we equate then? I, I, it's almost 
uh, logical to me that you see the sense of nationalism in countries which are more homogeneous in terms of their heritages um, than you would see in the United States. And so our sense of nationalism, I think, is way, way different uh, than people who are uh, more else, more historically isolated within a singular culture. And, you know, and, and that term, the globalization of nationalism, really, when I when I looked at that collection of things that were written in there, and you certainly are among those, um, I, I, that's the first thing that clicked in my mind. I just wonder how we have a nationalistic identity here. And if you see us or the America's um, sense of nationalism as being equal with these other countries, and in what way does it differ? I think it's an amazing question. I mean, in fact, you almost, you essentially answered it. I mean, Gorbachev used to say, in your question, there is an answer. <laughs> so that's exactly what you just did. I think it is different. And American nationalism, if for the lack of a better word, was always, has always been Americanism. I mean, we are the, we as Americans, we are the um, sort of shining city on the hill, and we are the beacon of, Western values and and other things, and I think that's what created American nationalism in a sense that it was a very global phenomenon. Always, I mean, and and I think that that's why America was so successful in standing against communism because it was that Americanism was almost a religion, is to you know say that we are um, spread values messianic values around the world, the values of freedom, the values of comfort, the values of um, of uh, uh, self-achievement, self-realization, and whatnot. And I think it is in a remarkable moment in, in history is that, you know, other countries, of course, that homogeneous traditional countries, of course, they have nationalist, nationalistic borders. They, you know, in, in, in Britain, they want Brexit because they sure. want uh, England back, whatever that, that back was. But when Donald Trump comes with America great again, what does it mean? Is it the country of John Wayne? I mean, what does it, is it the country that just goes and smashes the frontier and kills the, the, the ones that are not white? I mean, right, it's, it's, right, a, it's, a remarkable, it's a remarkable development. And I really don't have an answer to, to, this, to this question. But I think, you know, Americans should start reconsidering what it means to be an American with all the things that we know about America when it says, well, Putin wants to take take over our, uh, or undermine our moral leadership. Well, what does it mean to have moral leadership of the United States today? I mean, where is morality? I mean, how many things America has to do wrong to say, well, we made mistake here and there. And I think that stands at the core of this American nationalism. You can either be like Putin and say, well, we are the great and we have been wronged by everybody else, and therefore we're going to do whatever it takes to remain great, which is not, I believe, should not be the American approach. Or one can sit down with the world and say, well, we did X, Y, Z, we apologize. Like, for example, spying on the, during Dick Cheney and Barack Obama, spying on sure. NSA, on, on Angela Merkel and everybody else. Yeah, and, we you know, go all the way back to Chile if exa- we want. Exactly. And, you know, <coughs> instead of saying, well, we're really sorry, Barack Obama says, well, everybody spies. And so when Barack Obama says everybody spies, Putin then says, oh, okay, then we're going to do the same thing. So I think that is a very big question for the United States, is that not to become that nationalistic and traditional um, and traditional, very limiting terms. It really has to 
investigate its own role in world affairs to the good and the bad. And one of the problems that since America steps over its, its problems, then the world goes off and steps over its own problems. I mean, that moral leadership counts for something. And so when America acts immorally, that only gives... I mean, it shouldn't blame Russia for behaving this way. When it says Dick Cheney, you know, why would Putin do anything differently? Or Barack Obama? Or Donald Trump? When Donald Trump behaves like Donald Trump, Erdogan in Turkey is going to behave even worse. So I think, and this is something that I always find after living here for almost 30 years, I find it kind of remarkable that um, like all big, great countries, America is completely incapable of listening to criticism and suddenly is being seen as treason and whatnot. And I think that to better American democracy, I think it really should kind of do a little bit of a navel gazing. So we can sit back and analyze that certainly from that perspective. How much of a role does education have in that? I mean, do we start young enough? I, I think back to my grade school education in the 1950s and you know, you were indoctrinated. They wanted you to be part of the status quo in whatever way. You know, we had to hide under our desks at the appropriate Absolutely. time uh, in the era. And so did we. And so did you. Um, but, I, but I think back to that era, and there was more of a communal sense about what America meant. I don't know as that really exists anymore. I think there are so it's so factionalized. Oh, absolutely. But I mean, you know, it's not a question of, it's not even a question of politics. It's a question of many other social tradition, I mean, social changes and, and, um, uh, and uh, um, changes in technology and, and other things. America has been exporting comfort and it has been its kind of its messianic mission. But with comfort comes um, incredible dumbness. I mean, I'm sorry to sure, say. Sure, complacency, because, right, absolutely. Complacency. I mean, you don't need to travel because you can see it all on TV. You don't need to know the, um, um, the math because you can just do it on your calculator. And so I think that that dumbing down of America has certainly been happening. I mean, it's nobody's fault, but, you know, one of the problems, of course, you want to find an enemy who is responsible for this horrible thing. And I think when you mentioned the 60s, I mean, the brilliance of... of um, of Jack, uh, John Kennedy was exactly that. I mean, he did call for, I mean, he saw what the Soviet Union was was doing in math and science and education, and he really called for people to get better education to fight with the Soviets, not in, you know, not with the guns, but with actually with the minds, yes, exactly. Sure. I mean, who is going to do a space race? And I think that with uh, Nikita Khrushchev, that actually was the moment when he began to respect Kennedy. I mean, by the by the time of Kennedy's death in 63, Khrushchev respected him tremendously. I mean, he really won over that kind of old Soviet peasant who served Stalin and then wanted to change his own system. So, and I think, and I, and, but in a sense, I mean, I think Republicans were to blame because they normalized or tried to normalize Donald Trump when he came in. The media is to blame because they were running for the reality TV story at all times. I mean, you cannot really have wall-to-wall, more wall-to-wall coverage. Um, uh, they are to blame. But generally, I think um, America is to blame because it, instead of being prepared for changes, it just very conveniently decided that it's somebody else's fault instead of once again uh, looking at itself and answering these questions. And I do think that that moment when Barack Obama said to the world, everybody spies, so we're not going to take responsibility for that, I think was a horrible moment. I mean, we say allies love Barack Obama, yes, but it was a shocking moment for everybody and for people like me, who is a 
devoted Democrat and was a, you know, was in Barack Obama's camp. I I thought it was, it was, incredible American hubris that that just was really one not was not sitting well with with me and and so I'm I am blaming Trump for a lot of things. I am blaming Putin for a lot of things, but I also believe that it has been history of this kind of inconsistencies that only a fool. I mean, other countries would not take advantage of. I mean, only a fool, because if America were in this, the other side position, I was actually thinking about Putin and Trump conversation yesterday. If the roles were reversed and Trump would make such a total idiot out of Putin as he did yesterday, um, America would say, this is a great victory for American democracy. That's incredible. So that expectation that you can behave a certain way, but others don't have the right, is that American hubris that ultimately becomes problem and creates this kind of nationalism instead of take a deep breath and think of how to move forward in a constructive manner. Well, I think it creates a great deal of the division that we have in the country as well, because you have people that are willing to accept the hubris, right, uh, who just feel that um, this is us and God's on our side, as Bob Dylan said, and okay. you know we'll, we'll, we're it. just going to run with it. Right. But then you have the thinking population of the country whose hearts and minds are connected in a way that gives them enough compassion to realize that there has to be fairness and a level of morality. Um, in the major steps mm-hmm. that we take. I mean, not that, you know, we haven't been good to our own people throughout Absolutely. our history, let Absolutely. alone the, the rest of the planet. Exactly. And when and when the Russians or the, the Turks or the Chinese, I mean, you know, that's the moment when uh, um, the Chinese were telling Trump that instead of walls, he needs to build bridges was a shocking moment to me. It was when, when China... It's telling them, us. Exactly, telling America that yeah. it's human rights is a problem, that's a problem. Yes. I mean, we're not even talking about the Russians. It's, I mean, Putin is just such an incredible uh, villain that America loves from James Bond movies. So, of course, all attention is, is on, on the Russians, but and some of it was on the Chinese. But there was an incredible moment when suddenly... The human, the human rights abuser is telling America, and it is right. I mean, that's what's the most shocking part is that, yes, we suddenly got uh, paid attention to yeah, right. the Who police. Us? Right, <laughs> exactly, to police brutality, to this. I mean, yeah. and, you know, all the right. stories about um, people calling, you know, calling police on, on people of color because right. they shouldn't be at the pool. I mean, and just imagine how, just for a second, because Americans think that this story is it's about them but when these stories are published in Russia or Turkey or Hungary that's why is America coming to my country to tell me what to do look at them and that is a problem with the United States it just doesn't look at itself thinking that whatever it does as you said it's God's God's will and who are they and I think that also creates uh, this kind of nationalistic defense is that mm. who are they to tell us that we are wrong? But that also brings America closer to the rest of the world because now that's what Hungary feels is who are who is this European old Europe and Donald Rumsfeld's terms who tell me what to do? For the Russian, it's the same thing. What do you you know? Why are you so superior to me? I mean, look at you. You are not superior. That's how China feels right now. And I think this is a really big moment for the United States either get worse or get better and really become 
that beacon that really was, I mean, I keep thinking, America used to make us better, and mm -hmm. now America makes us worse. And that's a stunning realization. You think it's a byproduct of the Marshall Plan after World War II that we put ourselves in that moral high ground position that we just have never let go of in spite of ourselves? Well, it is, I mean, yes, but the Marshall Plan was an amazing thing. I mean, and once again, that's America did incredible service to the world, but it also made it service to itself. I mean, it wasn't just, you know, because... Well, absolutely. Right, I, exactly. Yes. You serve yourself. And so so that is fine. But then it kind of stepped over the line and think our service to ourselves is our service to the world. And I think that's when it started breaking down. And so when Putin says, I'm going to serve the world and kind of stick it to the United States and kind of point out to every single inconsistency that they have, um, you know, why not, I mean, he has its own, he, and he, that's what he says in a press conference. Yes, Russia has his, his, its own interest and United States does that. But one of the, you know, problems for America things that its interest is the world interest and they are not. And we've seen it. We've seen it in, I mean, we've seen it many times, but we've seen it in Iraq. We've seen it in, in, in many, many instances since, uh, since the late 90s, I guess. I mean, mm -hmm. I would even say the 90s generally, but let's just go to to the late 90s and, and 2000s. And I think that inability to see that uh, American interests are not always world's interest is, once again, a problem for the United States. And so should we be surprised, then, that we have a president whose self-interest is not the interest of democracy? Absolutely. And I think once again, I mean, that's what Gorbachev said in your question. There's absolutely I think that Trump is a product of what has been happening. I mean, I wouldn't I don't blame the Marshall Plan, but I do think that that, uh, you know, kind of it became a given and almost an accepted that whatever America does is great, even when it's not great. So, no, we shouldn't be surprised because he is a product of that kind of hubris, of that kind of inconsistencies, of that kind of uh, aggrandizing aggrandizing behavior and uh, um, it he's not really to blame for this because he's a result he's a result of all of this and even European behavior as well because you know you can't have it both ways you can't support Ukraine against the Russians and then you cannot at the same time try to have a uh, gas being shipped <laughs> through the Baltic Sea because you don't want Ukraine to be there. I'm talking right. about the North, North Stream too. So, and Putin, who is a great tactician and a great judo master, he's an excellent judo master. I mean, that's his sports, and it's always important to see what kind of sports the leader plays because that explains his politics. He sees an opening, he sees an inconsistency, he goes for it. And then everybody's like, how did he do it? Because he that's what you do in judo. You know you want to win. You don't know mm -hmm. how you're going to win because there's no team playing. But you see an opening, you go for it. And so far in 18 years in power, he's gone into every single opening that was provided for him. If you're just joining us, we're recording in the Cohen Multimedia Studio on the grounds of the Chautauqua Institution. I'm John Marino, and my guest today is Dr. Nina Khrushcheva, and we are talking about Russia the United States and the state of the planet today. Thank you. A couple more questions. Um, what was your take on the summit? Have you boiled it down yet? And I'm expecting to see an essay on your list about this, and I would be surprised if you hadn't started one last evening. <laughs> you know, actually, I, I, am, I am and I'm not. 
because on one hand, I feel like there is nothing new to say to me for me because I didn't expect it any differently. Frankly, I knew that the kind of the agent of chaos, as Trump is, would absolutely lose to the steely gaze of Vladimir Putin. This is just not a question. Um, Trump was certainly played, but at the same time, played in an amazing way because Putin even didn't even say much. He just Trump played himself <laughs> by Putin standing right next to him. That's all there was. Um, so, no, I and I wasn't even surprised because everybody's incensed that Trump um, sided with Putin against his own intelligence agencies. But Trump has always said he doesn't believe them. He's always said it's a witch hunt. He's always been very critical of anything that we know suggests that he may not uh, won these elections fair and square. So that didn't surprise me, not even how far he has gone, but um, how much he was, on the other hand, I don't know, I mean, I'm saying I'm surprised, how much he was mesmerized by Putin. But I've seen it before. People well, are mesmerized by Putin. Do you think he's actually mesmerized? or does so. Or does Putin have something on Donald Trump? Well, that was a large part of the discussion overnight and yeah, into absolutely. this morning. Well, and I mean, and, and I said it a long time ago, is that, you know, Putin is an equal, if, if he goes against the United States the way he believes the United States has been going after Russia, he's an equal opportunity offender. If, he ha if they had the DNC, they certainly would hack the RNC. And I'm sure, and I was sure a long time ago that it's because Putin has Trump's secrets. Maybe not the DNC, the RNC necessarily. Maybe they're not such great secrets, but he certainly has Trump's secrets. Somebody has those Trump secrets. Um, and Trump may be afraid of it, but I think it's more than that. I think it's that kind of, you know, Dictators, and I don't mean dictators in a in a traditional sense, mm -hmm. but sort of alpha male of the world unite, and and Putin is the greatest in his field at this time and uh, in this history. Trump aspires of time. to that, and Trump aspires to that. I mean, when Erdogan got reelected, or once again right. he secured his right. further secured his position as president, he did say that Putin and I, even Erdogan, wants to be Putin. Putin and I are the greatest statesmen because we've been around politics for much for for longer than anybody. So all of them aspire to to be Putin in some ways. All of them aspire to be friends. And so I think Trump does does get mesmerized to the steely gaze and and Putin is um, I mean people stop talking about it uh, because he's such a pariah in American political discourse. But early on, there was many times noted that Putin is even better, or perhaps even better than Bill Clinton in kind of making his audience feel that he's talking just to them, completely agrees with anything they say, and just this greatest, um, um, kind of the greatest friend that they can ever have, which was his job as an, as an operative. Certainly, is to sure. Exactly, to recruit people and kind of to read. Putin is brilliant at reading the audience. And I think he read Trump and he's body language, his behavior, his being late for 40 minutes uh, to the meeting is something that uh, Trump got. He's a novice. I mean, we know he's a novice. And as for all his kind of braggadocious behavior, he he has nothing. I mean, he really against the 20 years of Putin in power and then 
30 years of Putin and KGB. I mean, who is going to stand to stand by? So I do think he was mesmerized. And I was sort of thinking about, you know, the scene from the Jungle Book, Rudyard Kipling's Jungle Book, when the python is mesmerizing the um, the monkeys right there, and they just go right into into him to become dinner, and that's exactly how I felt that 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 Trump was. But I think was sort of to conclude on this. I think what is really interesting is that how Putin uh, it, Putin's involvement in American politics is no longer an outside observer who is being blamed. He inserted himself right in the middle of it, and he answered the question directly yesterday. Exactly. It, it, it's, Yes, it's a matter of fact, and you might as well. I might as well talk about it. He inserted himself right in the middle of it, and now he becomes uh, uh, kind of he sided with the president. I mean, you know, uh, against everything else. I mean, he inserted himself into American domestic politics, and I think that can be an incredible danger because when Trump now went full blown against his own. Um, um, his own establishment, his own bureaucracy, his own uh, security services. And uh, Putin is right there with him. And I think these results can become incredibly unpredictable. And Russia should be ready for, uh, in, because it's not just a problem, I think, for America now. It can become a very destabilizing further problem for the world. And Russia is front and center in this kind of um, crisis that that I think we saw exasperated yesterday rather than being resolved with the Russians. Well, we certainly can't project it from the point of view that Russia wants to take over the United States. I mean, what would they it, do it with us? It does not. It's no. not that kind of an approach. Exactly. But to create the discord that they have done cripples us in many ways. And so our economic challenges become greater. And we find the president falling into that kind of approach uh, uh, with NATO and approach with the, you know, with the World Trade Organization and NAFTA and you, you name it. And, you know, there's a list of things where we've just been raked over the coals for years and taken advantage of it. And he's going to fix it all in 30 days or less. Well, absolutely. But that's, I mean, I think that that's where Putin stands is that the, the United States created this kind of discord. And of course, they found Russians to blame for it because the United States has been doing discords for the Russians and everybody else all throughout for their own interests. Mm -hmm. And so now mm -hmm. uh, it's a payback time, so to speak. So no, I don't think Putin wants to take the United States. But what, from where I stand, my interest is that how far he'd go and how far he wants to go to embarrass the United States. Because his annoyance with America runs really deep. I don't think he knew that he would get that far. Uh, until I think Hillary Clinton called him Hitler. I think that was the m moment when he thought that America deserves absolutely no um, uh, no consideration mm -hmm. whatsoever. Because if that's how it is, and you know, what Marco Rubio called him dictator, like you know what, if that's how you're going to do it, that's how I'm going to do it. So I think he's perfectly justified in his actions because if America sees Russia as an adversary, so fine, that's how you deal with an adversary. Then who wins first? And once again, if America, if the roles were reversed, America would have no qualms about doing that to the Russians. And so that's how he sees the world. So my question for Putin or about Putin is that how much he would want to, does it satisfy his revenge moment or that embarrassing Trump that much? 
or he's willing to take it wherever it takes. Because I'm not entirely sure where Putin wants to take the world after that. I mean, fine, he and Xi Jinping of China can then divide the world together, but well, what does it do to the world? And I was just going to ask, and who's the benefit of the, well, exactly. of the battle between exactly. the United States and Russia at, at, exactly. at this level? It really is China. Absolutely. And so, <laughs> so I do want to kind of understand what's the... Uh, what's the final game. But I also think that in, in this kind of uh, developments, we think that the leaders, the American leaders, the Russian leaders, or any leaders, particularly American or Russian or Soviet, they see a long trajectory and they plan, plan, every, plan every, uh, every step. I don't think so. I mean, a lot of it is what happens. I actually don't think Putin expected Trump to just fold so, so miserably. Because even, I mean, that was quite, I think I think he feels very triumphant, but I don't think he expected it because with all the bragging that Trump ever did, and he did do a good job with uh, uh, Xi Jinping and Macron, so he then totally folded with Putin. I don't know. France could be a beneficiary because Macron seems to be doing an incredible job. I mean, he almost lives in Moscow now. He's been there for four Certainly. or five two times in the last month and a half. He also... So it does seem that France, as it was before, suddenly appears to be kind of that. It's not even Germany, but that center that can unite and, and speak up for both sides. I don't know. I really don't know how far Putin wants to get it. But uh, what I think sort of last scenario is a possibility is that Trump would be told so many times that he lost to Putin, that he gets angry at Putin, sides finally with his intelligence. With his intelligence. Yeah. And that's where we would go from there. And I think that would be, frankly, I would root for that scenario. Because from that, the relationship can start being built. Is that we did this, you did this, how do we fix it? But not the United States president standing next to the Russian operative and saying, yay, let's hey. go be against everybody together. <laughs> right, exactly. Let me let me ask for one of your last thoughts. I, I watched a... Um, a video yesterday of a lecture panel that you were on or, or a, a conversation panel you were on. And you were, and it was fascinating to me because you were talking about Russia having both a European and an Asian identity. And you told a, a cute little story um, about looking it up to fill out some form and you were trying to find the code right. for it. And I thought that it was, it was just a wonderful story. But your perception, if you can take a minute just to kind of re- Iterate that definition of them both having a bit of the European sense, but they were really Asian. Well, actually, that's not what I said. I okay, mean, I, think, I misinterpreted. No, it, no, no. I mean, no, you didn't. But they're not really Asian. They're actually not Asian at all. No, no, no. I, okay. Right. So they are. I mean, what I think I don't remember exactly what I was saying then, but generally, Russia is, in amazing ways, an oxymoron of geography, because it is. Um, and in, in fact, tomorrow I will be talking about this, I think. I mean, given Trump-Putin meeting, it seems so trivial to speak about Russia, but maybe not, uh, is that one side of it is in Europe. I mean, the Russian city of Kaliningrad used to be German city of Königsberg. Uh, so on one side. And on the other side, there is a, a Kamchatka, where you remember Sarah Palin memorably sees Russia from right, the backyard. Home, yes. So, so that's something that uh, that is provides for this kind of slightly split personality disorder. So, Russia is an imitation culture. It is an imitation culture of the West. Hmm. 
but at the same time, because the West defines anything that Russia does, but at the same time, it's further from the West than, uh, than the West, uh, it does have this identity that imitates the West and then rebels against this imitation. So Russia is what the West is not. It is a Western country of what the West is not. It's the unwest, but it's not Asia. I mean, I know it so sounds a little complicated, but for example, when you go to Blagoveshensk, which is on the border with China across Amur River, it's 500 meters. I mean, I don't know how many. Uh, it's less than a mile. Uh, and you see the other side. And in this city, there is nothing Chinese whatsoever. I mean, you can see Chinese only when they... Uh, gawk at the huge Lenin statue that, that is in Blagoveshensk because Lenins are everywhere uh, still. But in this uh, Russian city on the border of China, which only a century and a half ago was actually a Chinese city, what you find, what you see instead of Chinese, you would see the smoking club Sherlock Holmes because, you know, that's what you have on the okay. border with China. You have a French restaurant, Belletage, with the quote of uh, German writer Goethe, uh, but the quote is written in English. So you have this combination of French, English, and German. Uh, you will have a beauty salon Lalique, which is French, and you have a coffee shop of Julius Meln, which is Austrian. So that's your kind of idea of the West. It is an imitation of the West, but also uh, something that Russia keeps fighting against because it keeps saying, well, we have our own Russian identity, but its own Russian identity is either to be imitating the West or be what the West is not, which makes it squarely Western, but slightly confused. Dr. Nina Khrushcheva, this has been a pleasure. You're, you're a delight to talk to, and thank, thank you for you. your insights. Thank you very much. Thanks to Nina Khrushcheva for joining us on CHQ&A today and to guest interviewer John Marino. Our producers for this episode were Thomas Mitchell, Dave Munch, and Vincent Nelson. A version of this program may also air as Chautauqua Chronicles on WRFA 107.9 FM, listener-supported radio in Jamestown, New York. CHQ&A is a production of Chautauqua Institution, recorded in the Cohen Multimedia Studio. I'm Jordan Steves. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back shortly with another episode of CHQ&A.